We're going to Romans, please, the book of Romans. Heading for the book of Romans. Go to chapter 9, please, chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 9 and 10 in the book of Romans, please. There are many causes that people are really, really involved in. There's the cause of poverty. A number of people are very, very concerned about dealing with that issue. There's the cause of pollution that people are very, very enamored with and want to be involved and try to help the world to clean up some of the pollution. There's a cause of education. There are people who sacrifice their lives, who give of their time, who study, who teach, to train so that they can go into schools here and abroad and teach people because they want people to be able to read, to write, and to have that knowledge. There's causes politically Some of you get involved with them. You get in the causes of one of the parties or some independent group, and you can march and you can do different types of letters and all kinds of campaigning. People get very involved with politics. There's some causes that are dealing with moral issues like abortion. And people get very wrapped up in that, and it's a good thing, like all these other causes, to get involved in, to try to make a difference, to try to make an impact. There's even the cause for helping animals and protecting animals from abuse. So there's lots of good causes for which people get involved in, and people focus on, and they want to make a difference. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 and 10, he says, I have a cause. And that cause in his concern was concerned about people and caring and things of that sort, but he makes it very clear in chapter 9, verse 1 of Romans. He says, this is my cause. He says, I say the truth in Christ and I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Jump down to chapter 10 where he picks it up again in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul had this burden that was a good burden, a burden for a cause that is his own relatives, his own friends, his own countrymen. Now remember, Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles, And some accused him. They said, that means you don't care about your people. He says, that's not true. That's not true. Even though the bulk of my ministry is going to the Gentiles, I have a burden for the Jews as well. In other words, Paul had a burden for all peoples who were lost. And if you notice about his burden, it was real. You go back to chapter 9 when he describes it. He says three proofs here. In verse 1 he says, I say the truth in Christ. He says, I lie not and my conscience bearing me witness. He is making it very clear this isn't just something that he's supposed to say from the pulpit. This isn't something that just moves when he wants to move somebody else. This was in his heart. It was a real burden that other people get saved. His burden was intense. It wasn't just frothy. It wasn't just the idea of imagined. He makes it very clear where he says in this passage in verse 2 of chapter 9, he says, I have great heaviness of heart. 
and he goes on and he talks about, I could wish myself, or he says, continue sorrow, and I wish myself that I could be accursed. This is a burden that is real with him, enough that he's going to mention it in chapter 9, chapter 10. It's real enough to him that he has a heartache, a great burden upon his heart. He makes common, he says, I have sorrow. This is like grief-like sorrow. I am really broken by the fact that these people don't know Christ, and they could end up in hell. He says, I wish that I could be accursed. If I couldn't, and the if is not possible, but if I could take their place, I wish that I was even accursed from God so that they could get into heaven. And so he's got this burden that is real. He's got this burden that is intense. You know, there are times when we get burdened for people. I remember one time being burdened for one of my kids. One of my kids was just, uh, I think it was Tony. He was like 18 months, two years old, something like that. And he needed to have ear surgery. And so in order for him to have that surgery, they had to do x-rays. Now we're going back into the, you know, the, the you know, prehistoric times. I know because I'm very old. And what they did is they had this system. That they said, okay, you have to come in and hold your child perfectly still so we can do a lung x-ray. So I'm holding a 20-month-year-old perfectly still. That doesn't work. That just doesn't work. And uh, so I had to go in, and we sat there, and then they, they tried it with me holding him, and, it, and he wouldn't hold still. So then they come up with these contraptions, these devices that hold the kid perfectly still. Now, this is more modern. Back then, it was more, it was made out of stone. No, it wasn't. <laughs> It was a wooden, it was a wooden pla- uh, board, and they strapped him down on this wooden board. And as they, I had to leave the room, number one, that caused him to be traumatized. And then they're strapping him down on this board so he couldn't move at all, including his head. And he's in this board. And so I stepped out. Deb was out there, and she was crying because she heard her baby crying. And they opened the door, and I could see just through that little bit. I was right at that door watching, and I saw my son laying you know, on this table and just, ah! I could barely hear him because I was, ah! I was very burdened for him at that moment that I wanted to take his place. It couldn't happen. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that there's loved ones that he knows. There's family. There's friends. He wants them to know Christ. And it burdens me, he says. This burden that I have is constant. It's not just on a Sunday morning. It's not just once a week. He says, I have this burden where he says, I have great heaviness, a continual sorrow. He uses two different verbs, but they both contain this idea. The first one is, I keep on having this heaviness over and over and over and over again. The other verb that he uses, I have had in the past sorrow, and it continues to the present. And so he's using two different verbs to get the idea across, this bothers me, this really motivates me, that these, my kinsmen, my fellow countrymen, that they aren't saved. You know of Robert Cheeseborough, you, you use his device, Vaseline, he made it back in the late 1800s. He was so convinced that this product would help take care of burns that what he did when he was demonstrating it and trying to get it on the market, he kept on burning himself over and over and over. His body was filled, they said, with different scars from the burns as he would go in and show the effectiveness of Vaseline to help calm that pain down and help over a while. And so this man was dedicated. He was burdened for a product that even put his skin on the line, if you would. Paul says, I am so burdened that 
I, I have scars for it. I will work hard for this to get this gospel out. He was moved for what he really believed in. He was moved to try to get the gospel out. Why? Well, if you look at the text where he's going to explain in chapter 10, he's basically saying, I was where they were at one time. I know better now, but at one time, I was right where they're at. Go to chapter 10. Notice how he describes his kinsmen, his fellow countrymen. And basically what he's going to say, he says, the Jews, here's what I know about them. My brethren, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer is for them that they might get saved, for I bear them record. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He knows these people aren't saved just because they're Jews, but they think they are. They think because that they belong to this nation that has the word of God, that they are already saved. And he says, no, my heart's desire is that they would get saved. They would come to Christ as their Savior. The problem is most of the Jews didn't think they were bad enough. They didn't think they were sinful enough. Oh, when they compared themselves to other people, they would look at the Gentiles. The Gentiles aren't as religious as we Jews are. The Gentiles don't have as much Bible knowledge as we have. And so the Jews would feel pompous and proud to say that they were very good people. They had the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. And so they're much better than the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they're worshiping pagan idols. The Gentiles, they're doing all kinds of evil in their worship even. They're even involving drunkenness and orgies. And we don't do that. So we're much better than them. But Paul is saying, and yet they don't realize they aren't, built, but they aren't saved just because they go to a church, just because they know the Bible. And he, he's broken for them because he says most of them, they look at other Jews and they see some that are the tax collectors and some that are living a wicked lifestyle. And they say, most of them who go to the synagogue, who go to the temple say, I'm pretty good by making a comparison with other people. Does that ever happen today? That people come to churches like this, they sit, they look around, in their mind's eye, they see people who don't go to church. Well, I'm here. I have a Bible. I'm an American. I'm a part of a Christian nation. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. And don't even realize what the Word of God says. The Word of God says very simply, for all have sinned and come short of the the word for glory is the standard of God to get into heaven. We all fall, fall short. The Jews didn't realize that. Instead, what the Jews did, Paul even says, I was there. That was my life. I thought I was really good. I was even zealous for God. But then when I all of a sudden stopped comparing myself with other people and compared myself with Jesus Christ, I knew that I fell short. When I had that that knowledge of Jesus, when he appeared to me on that road to, Damasc uh, to Damascus, when he appeared to me, he says, he struck me dumb, and I realized my own guiltiness, just like many of you here. When all of a sudden you come to the Word of God and say, wow, I'm a sinner, which we all are. Wow, the wages of sin is death or separation, but the gift of God is eternal life. I deserve to go to hell. That's what my wage is. That's what I deserve. And if God gave me just what I deserved, I'd end up in hell. Well, Paul said he realized that. 
But his countrymen, they don't even acknowledge that they're that bad. They don't think they are. And they're very zealous in their religious practices. He mentions in verse 2, he says they have a zeal of God, but they don't have it with an intimate knowledge of God. They're going through the motions, but they really don't know him. They have never met God. They have never come to a place where they have a personal relationship with God Almighty, with Jesus Christ. But they're very active like Paul. Paul was. Paul said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I even went out zealously and I persecuted those who weren't Jewish. He says, but I came to a knowledge that, wait a minute, I really don't know the Lord. I don't really know Christ. That I think about him here, but I've never asked him to have a relationship with me. There's lots of people like that even in the world today. Good people, nice people, religious people, that do a lot of good things. But the question isn't, are they doing good works? The question for each one of them is, what have you done with Jesus? Is Jesus your Savior? Have you admitted that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that Jesus is the only one who can get you into heaven? Something else, he says this. He says, these people that were my fellow kinsmen who go to church, who do all their religiosity, look at verse 3. They are ignorant of God's righteousness. Why is that? Because they go about to establish their own righteousness. The idea here is that they are individuals that say, I'm good enough because I have kept the feast days. I'm good enough because I'm observing rituals. People do that in America. I'm good enough because I go to a church. I'm good enough because I've got baptized. And they're relying on rituals and works, but they really don't realize it's not their own goodness. Because even if we stacked up our goodness, all of our own goodness is as filthy rags before God. Because we're doing it in pride. We're doing it to exalt ourselves. And the only way we get into heaven is not our own goodness, but of the goodness, the grace of Jesus Christ, who came, died, buried, resurrected to give us eternal life. And then he comments, he says, these people who claim to be so religious, who claim to know so much Bible, he says they don't even know their Bible well enough, the law, the Old Testament passages. Because he says in this passage, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believes. That's what the Bible, he says, teaches. They even have that Old Testament, but they don't realize it. You see, people can hear the Bible, even carry a Bible, but not understand it. It's like the youngster that came to our Bible school about two or three years ago. This youngster had a Bible. The parents sent him to our Bible school with the Bible so that he would have that. But when they started talking, the leader started talking to the youngster, the youngster had a question. He said, what does the 316 mean in, it says John 316. And the leader says, well, you have a Bible. Have you ever read it? No. Well, don't you know what John 3.16, he says, well, I think the 3.16 means the time that John wrote it. He meant it sincerely. He had no clue what it meant. He had a Bible, but it was meaningless to him. He had never really read it. That's what Paul is saying with many of the Jews. Oh, they probably had more, more of a tidbit knowledge. They probably understood a little bit more, but they refused to see what the Bible teaches that Christ is the end of the law. Do you know what the word means here for the end of the law? It means that Jesus fulfilled it all. All the perfect requirements for anybody to get into heaven, Jesus kept. He's the only one who did it. 
He kept all of those. He, he fulfilled them perfectly. But not only did he fulfill them, it says that he finished them, the end of the law. He put it aside. Because when he died for our sins, this perfect man died in our place. When he was hanging on the cross, as he was suffering for your sin and my sin, what does he say at that one time? It is finished. Or in other words, paid in full. This perfect man gave his life so that our sins could be covered. And the Jews didn't even recognize that. They didn't even see Jesus pictured in it. And Paul is saying, I did that. I didn't see Jesus. But now that I've come to a place where I've encountered Christ as my Savior, I admitted that I'm a sinner, I've called upon him who gave his life for me, all of a sudden it becomes clear. And I understand that when I put myself under all those commandments... There's 10 that most people know about, but actually 637 in that whole code. Paul says people don't even understand. If they say, I'm going to follow that code in order to get into heaven, they have to keep it 100% of the time, and nobody can do it. For there is how many righteous? None. No, not one. And so Paul says, I'm really burdened for these people because they misinterpret the word of God. He goes on, talks about that even further where he says, down in verse 6 and 7, but he says they don't even understand the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. And then he quotes some Old Testament passages that talk about Christ and him coming down from heaven, that picture it. And so he's making it clear. He's saying that they don't understand what the Old Testament taught. You don't get to heaven by works, but by faith in God's Son. And so he concludes, he says, this is what they need to realize, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, in other words, Jesus is God, and shall believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead for your sake. He died, buried, and was raised, so God accepted his payment. If you believe that with all your heart, you confess Christ as your Savior, you shall be, what's the promise? You'll be saved. He says, my kinsmen, they don't realize this. They've misinterpreted the word of God. But part of the problem is they won't understand unless somebody goes to them and tells them. Look at down verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But he's pro he said there's a problem. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him and whom they have not yet believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not yet heard? How shall they hear except somebody becomes a preacher. Somebody goes and presents the truth to them. And Paul says, that's why I am doing this. I am focusing on getting the word out because these people need to see and have it explained to them so that they could respond in faith. And because once they hear the truth, then, he says, they're without excuse. Verse 21, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient, gainsaying people. If they reject, that's what they're going to hear. By the way, may I add to this? Jesus makes it clear as we preach to the kids at camp this past week that there's going to be a judgment day. And when he does that judgment, he's going to make it clear that people had opportunity to hear the word of God. And many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have not we done all these good things? And I will say unto them, depart from me, ye workers of, the word means you, you insisted on doing your own thing. And then he adds, I never knew you. 
You never came to me for forgiveness. You were relying upon yourself. And one day I'm going to end up saying to you, but to you, all day long I have stretched forth my hands, but you are a disobedient people. You do not want to be at judgment day and God's saying, do you remember you heard the truth? You heard it back on August 6th, 2023, you heard it and you rejected. You don't want to reject it anymore. You want to listen to what Paul and others have said. You want to come to Christ and realize he and he alone is the one that he wants to save or can save and he wants to save you. Paul says, I know that he wants to save the Jews. He's not done with them. Even though many of the world was done, God's not done. So I'm, I'm really burdened. I want these people to be saved. Are you burdened for your family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, teammates? Are you burdened for them who do not know the truth? Who go to church but they don't understand the Word of God? Who cannot understand without somebody explaining it to them? Are you burdened enough that you will be like Paul that says, it bothers me. It bothers me that some of the relatives and friends they will die and go to hell. There's a story told from one of the preachers that came to our church years and years and years ago when he held evangelistic meetings when we were in that old building on 422. He told this story about a fellow that, that was in ministry doing evangelism and going from church to church preaching meetings years ago. And this man went to a church that was in a country area that was just vibrant. People were getting saved. There was a good number of people there that were trying to learn the Bible, follow the Bible, talk to their family and friends. And this young man came in one of his first revival meetings, evangelistic meetings, and preached. And he said, this place was a fire. The people were enthusiastic. They loved Jesus. And at the very front, up there on their banner, it had those words, where there is no vision, the people perish. Fast forward several decades. That same preacher now is further on in his ministry. He's in that same part of the country, and he thought, hey, I wonder what ever happened to that little old country church. So he drove down a road or two trying to find it where he's trying to remember 20 years ago where it was, and he couldn't find it, couldn't find it. He was sure that there had to be, you know, some bigger building, something more modern, but he drove around and all he found in these back roads was one dilapidated church building. This dilapidated church building was even closed up. The windows had boards over them. And he's parked in their, in their overgrown parking lot and he's thinking, you know, really, that, that kind of looks like the building. That same building. So he got out of the car, went up, and he pulled up one of the boards away so enough that he could get inside and sure enough, he said it was the building. It was the layout that he remembered, the way the pews were, the way the auditorium was, where the choir sang. And he said, wow, what happened? How could such a vibrant church go dead? And then he looked up front and he saw what had happened. Up at the front where it had the words, where there is no vision, the people perish, the W had fallen off. And now it read, here there is no vision, the people perish. What vision do you have? Have you lost a burden for other people? Well, Paul had such a burden that Paul not only was burdened for the lost, he started begging for the lost. 
Look what he says here in this passage. He says in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God. So he moves with this burden to do something. His prayer is one of pleading. The word that he uses here, my heart's desire and deasis, it is a word that means begging. It is the idea of Lazarus at the foot of the table begging for a scrap of food. It is the idea of coming and saying before God, I plead with you, please, please work in the hearts of my family, my friends, my relatives. Paul's begging was personal. He says, this is my heart's desire. Not just a group of people, but he says, this is what I am praying for. This is what I am doing. I am begging over and over persistently. I am asking God, please soften their heart. Please work in such a way that my friend, my coworker may get saved. Now, I learned a couple things. Number one, before we go talking to people, we need to talk to God. We need to ask God to help us to break up the hard ground, to stir up the, the moments. But then what we need to do is we need to be praying not just for the physical needs and the health needs of people, but we need to have in our prayer list, we need to be praying for people by name that they get born again, for friends and relatives. We need those first Wednesdays of the month to get together as a group to pray for souls to get saved. We need to be asking the Lord to work. And what do we ask the Lord to do? There are several verses of Scripture that are talking about praying in relationship to the lost and the gospel that we want to share. There is a passage that talks about in Ephesians 6, Paul says, please pray for me. Pray for me that I may have boldness to speak the word of God as I ought to. We need to pray for boldness. You know what it's like. You're intimidated at times to give out a tract, to speak up for Christ. But have you countered that by praying for boldness regularly? We need to be praying as well for other laborers to enter into the field. Jesus said, pray ye the Lord of the harvest. That he says the, the field is white, but the laborers are, field, are few. We need to pray that we clearly present the Word of God. Paul talks about, help me, pray for me, that I may make clear utterance of the truth. We need to pray <coughs> that those who do not know the truth, that they would not be blinded by the evil one. The evil one who takes away, snatches away the Word of God. We need to pray that they would be, listen, that they would want to hear. We need to be praying as well with this idea that they would believe Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus who has died. And he says, Father, you know all things. Please, Father, work in a way that they may, because he's talking about the crowd standing there, the crowd that made him angry, the crowd that was weeping and wailing without genuine care or concern. And Jesus says, help them that they would understand that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that I am the resurrection and the life. Not a church, not baptism. I'm the one. And he prays for them that they would believe. The idea here is you and I, if we're genuinely concerned about people getting saved, we should be praying for them. Now reflect back over this past week. Is that a characteristic of your prayer life?
have you been praying for those co-workers, those family members? Have you been pleading beseechingly to the Lord, please give me the wisdom, give me the compassion, help me to speak? There's a story out of church history that talks about a mother who was a devout Christian. Her parents were as well. They arranged a marriage for her, and she got married to this man who claimed to be a believer, but it came out that he really wasn't. They had three children that lived into adulthood. One of their children, two of them followed the Lord, but one of them, when he was a young man in his teens, he walked away from anything to do with Christ, anything to do with the Bible, with what Bible they had. And he went into a lifestyle that was a wicked, immoral lifestyle. He even came to a point that he adopted some pagan religions through their rituals so that he could live in a way that was just a horrible lifestyle. He stayed there for a number of years. His mother pled with the Lord, please soften his heart. Please soften his heart. She prayed for some 16, 17 years daily, even fasted and prayed at times for her son to come back to a point where he would listen to the truth and repent of his sin and ask Christ to be his Savior. She went to her preacher one time, and she says, what more do I do? And the preacher gave her this little tidbit. It is not possible that a son of so many tears should perish. I believe your son will be saved. Well, in time, God did answer her prayer. As she faithfully prayed, her son that you may have heard about he got born again and is one of the greatest church fathers over 1,600 years later. His writings are still being studied throughout seminaries today in Christendom. Because he attributes in his own story, my mother prayed and I knew she was praying and that was the pricking of the Spirit on my heart that brought me back to a point where I believed in Christ. And he in his message when he talks about that in his writing about it, He encourages mothers, do not stop praying. Have you? There's lots of causes to get involved with people. There's lots of good things going on in this world. But seeing people get born again, that's the best burden to have. And if it's genuine, that burden will translate into begging. Begging Christ to give you the power, the wisdom, the compassion to share the Word of God. You know, so many of us, we get caught up, we just forget. 1985, city of New Orleans. They didn't have a single drowning in all the city pools. So they decided to get together and hold a party with all that hundred and some lifeguards that they were celebrating. So they rented a spot. They got there. There was a pool even for the lifeguards to enjoy themselves. Had a wonderful party celebrating the fact that nobody drowned. And then when the party was over, when it was all done, they noticed a young man, Jerome Moody, by the, at age 31. He had fallen in to the deep end, hit his head, and there he was at the bottom of the pool. He had drowned. What an irony. All these people celebrating that they didn't lose a single person in drowning that season, and one of their own, he drowned at the very celebration because they were preoccupied with the partying. Have you become so preoccupied with the activities of ministries, with the partying of your life, with the vacations, and with everything else that are good, nothing wrong with any of them, that you have stopped looking and people are drowning 
within your own immediate reach and influence. A burden, a begging. But then what does he do? He got busy. He got busy with reaching the lost. It's not any singular verse here. It's the entire book. Paul was so concerned that he started writing. Paul was so concerned that he went out speaking. Paul was so concerned that he went to the Gentiles and he went to the Jews. He was so concerned that he says, God, I am going to do what I can to share the word of God with others. I want them. And he says, I'm going to do it, even though it led to some trials, some difficulties, where he was in shipwrecks, where he was hungry, where he was in fasting. He had lonely nights. He had some rejection. He had some times where it caused him to travel a long distance. We are so fortunate today. We have so many tools at our disposal to get out the gospel in just minutes. We can go home this afternoon and we can share the gospel with dozens of people by going online, by setting up a Facebook page, by sharing our testimony, and we can reach out the gospel so much more than Paul did. But the question is, to what lengths would you go so that your friends and family could hear the good news that Jesus and Jesus alone is their Savior? Would you be willing to say, God, use me. Now, it comes from several different stories, several different events, some in Europe, one in San Francisco, where they talk about statues of Jesus that all of a sudden, because of war damage or building beams falling down, all of a sudden, the hands on the statue of Jesus, the hands are gone. And on several of those places, people had done like this one building did, this one place did, they put something at the bottom of the plaque to remind them of these words, I have no hands but yours. To just help the people to understand that Jesus is great and powerful, but he uses us. He puts the actual burden of doing the sharing of the word upon us. Will he do the spiritual work? Absolutely. But you have to do the initial contact. So the question comes down to, what will you do? What will you do with this? Will you look around at family, friends, relatives, neighbors, co-workers? Will you take a serious look and say, do they need Christ? And will you seriously think this through? Without Christ, they could be in hell. One of our families just, just here yesterday, they lost a grandparent. And their conversation that we had last evening was about this. Where is our grandfather? We had shared with him at times, but he had rejected. Where is he now in the last two hours? Did he repent or is he in hell? And they don't know for sure, and there's a burden. But they can honestly say we had a burden before we shared with him. We didn't wait until now when it's too late, and then we're going to talk to him. Look around. See your family, see your friends as souls. Where will they spend eternity? Then look up to the Lord. Pray to the Lord for that boldness. Pray to the Lord that they would receive the word of God. Get together with somebody else and join your prayers so you hold each other accountable. And then do this. Look for the opportunities. What could they be? Maybe the opportunity is giving out a tract. Maybe the opportunity 
is going home and sending out an email, setting up a Facebook page that shares your testimony. Maybe the opportunity is inviting somebody to church if the Lord tarries and we have services next week. Maybe the opportunity for a number of you is get involved with a ministry like Neighborhood Night that we're asking church family to get involved, work together so we can get the gospel out. But do something. Get involved. Don't just sit passively while people die and go to hell. Do what Christ said. Go into the world and give out the gospel. Don't do what I did. And I shared this with you, and I think the last time I shared it was about six years ago, that when I was in college studying for the ministry, I worked in a garage, a car garage there in Owatonna. And one of my jobs was cleaning vehicles, but another job was to help drive the new Cadillacs to different dealerships if we were swapping. And so one day the owner came to me, I'll just leave his name as Dick, came to me and said he and I were going to go to another town there in southern Minnesota, pick up um, an, uh, two different Cadillacs, take the one we're doing, swap it out for two other ones, and then come back. And so I, I like this guy. And I'd been praying, God, give me a chance to talk to the the owner of the company, the car garage there, let me please talk with Dick about Jesus. And so we get in the car, and as we're driving out of Oatana, he's asking me, how's school going? What are you studying at school? And my response was stuff. You know, history. You know, what's your favorite class? The Bible. Oh, what are you learning about the Bible? And I'm sitting there saying, God, if this is the right opportunity, let me know. And he's asking me these questions. And we're driving. And as we're driving, I'm just so intimidated. He's my boss. You know, I heard before him using the Lord's name in vain. And I heard him cussing out those you know, preachers. And so I'm just sitting there quietly. And as we drive, we're driving out of town. And in Minnesota, the towns are different. They're spread out. They're not just continuous. And each little town in a little village has its own church. And it's always the high spot of the town. And so as we're driving down these roads and past the village, he goes, hey, you see that church there? What kind of church do you think it is? God, if you really want me to talk to him, let him bring it up. And I said, I don't know. He says, well, what do you think that they, they teach there? I said, I don't know. We go past, and I'm saying, oh, Lord, I was such an idiot. If he, if he says something, and we're going back to a, past another town, there's another church. Would you think you'd have fun preaching in a church that big? We get to the place where we're swapping cars, and I was so afraid I never shared the gospel with him. And so he says to me after we swap cars, he says, you go back to work, and I'm going to uh, go and visit somebody. I'll see you here in a couple days. So I drove the car back to Oatana, park it, and all the way back I'm, I'm tearing I'm saying, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Get back to Oatana. And I didn't tell you, this was the last two days of the school year. I'd be gone for the whole summer now. College would be over. And so the next day, Dick didn't come to work. But I was going to talk with him. God knows I'm going to talk with him. He didn't show up. The next day, I was done. He wasn't there. So I went through the summer. And that summer, I was a preacher boy at another church leading people to going out and doing witnessing and doing youth ministries and stuff like that. And in my heart, God, when I get back to Oatana, I'm going to talk to Dick. I'm going to talk with him. There's no, God, I really blew it. Forgive me. 
So come the end of August, we get back and get back to Oatana. I'm unpacking in, in the campus, doing things, take care of what I need to. And I wanted to go down to the car garage because I wanted to talk to Dick and I wanted to get my job back. So I went down there and obviously we had a conversation with one of the managers, got my job back. And then I asked, I said, by the way, is Dick here? I really need to talk to him. And Tom, the manager of the company, said, oh, you don't know. I said, know what? He goes, oh, that's right. That would have been after you'd left. He says, you got to come in my office. So I go back in the office. He shuts the door. And he said, here's, remember that day you drove over to whatever that town was? Picked up the car. He said, I said, yeah. He said, well, Dick called me the next day and said he wouldn't be in. And then he called me another day and said he wouldn't be in. He said several days went by and I didn't hear from him at all. He said, we tried calling. No. He said, I had a key to his apartment, so I went to his apartment and I unlocked it and I checked and it was like, okay, you know, he's not here, but his suitcase is here, other odds and ends, so it's not like he just left on a trip. And it's really strange. So he said, I went down to the garage and when I went down to the garage and opened it up, he said, I found Dick hanging from a beam. I was the last person that talked to him. And if he really wants to talk, and I didn't, I don't know where he's at. A friend of mine who worked there before said he had lengthy conversations with Dick about Christ. I don't know. But I know this. I learned, take the opportunities. Stop sitting in church and talking about people getting saved. Go out and share the word so they have a chance. Father, help us to be individuals who don't just preach this, believe this, Help us to be individuals who aren't just all about others sharing the gospel. Help us in this room to have a real genuine burden. To put our burden on our knees, talking to people. Where we go out and talk to you and then we actually go out and give an invite, get involved in neighborhood night, do something to help get out the gospel. I pray from this room that tracks would go out this week at businesses, to neighborhoods. I pray that from this group, some of the teens would go out and that they would talk with their friends, send them an email. I pray that by grace and kindness and compassion, some would connect with neighbors, invite them to a church, invite them to a ministry where they will hear the gospel. Help us not just be people with heads bowed and eyes closed at this moment and our hearts tuned out. Help us to be individuals who are genuinely concerned and burdened enough to pray and to reach out. God, I ask that you would do a work in my heart and in the heart of my friends here to help us to have the same burden Jesus had that led him to Calvary. While your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, 
you are not sure of your eternal destiny, we want to give you that opportunity. We have some staff standing over by the right-hand side of the auditorium, and they will gladly take the Bible and show you, but heads are bowed, eyes are closed, so that we don't embarrass you. We're going to have the entire congregation just stand for a moment here. And while we have the instrumentalists play through just one hymn, if you would like to go and talk with somebody, excuse yourself. Those people won't mind one bit. Just excuse yourself and go to the right side of the auditorium to the open doors and say to one of those men or ladies standing there, can somebody show me from the Bible? And they'll take you into a room, show you in a matter of five, seven minutes what the Bible says, and you decide. This is your opportunity. You who are born again, what will you actually do with getting out the gospel? What will you do? 